Welcome to the I Belong Here podcast. Please join us on this journey as we will navigate the world meeting fantastic women who are real scientific role models. Together, we wish to inspire the next generation of girls who dream about being scientists. Look out for our male ambassadors too, as they do believe in the representation women deserve and earn in science. Stay tuned for amazing guests, check out the podcast description for credits and acknowledgements, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain, yeah. She breaking me down. Hi friends, welcome to a new episode of the I Belong Here podcast. Today, our next guest is called Pratyusha. Hey Pratyusha, how are you? Hi now. I'm good. How are you doing? All good. All good. Now uh, it's starting to feel like spring uh, here in the UK. It's still a bit chilly, but it's starting to feel a bit nicer and it's really sunny today. So that's always good. Um, I'm really excited to have you here in the podcast. Uh, I've known you for a while on Twitter. Uh, so I'm really excited to get to know you today and ask you lots of questions. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. I feel honored to be here. <laughs> it's it's so good to have you, you know, as part of the, the family uh, here in this podcast. Um, so I want to, uh, for the people that are listening to us right now, I want to tell them a bit more about you. Uh, so Pratyusha Konda received her bachelor's in technology from the Indian Institute of Technology, IT Madras in India. She's currently pursuing her PhD at Dalhousie University in Canada. Her research interests include immunomics and cancer immunotherapies. Outside research, she's involved in various leadership roles as, as the president of the Graduate Student Society. She has been developing a peer support network program for her peers at the university for the last couple of years. She has also been involved in initiating several graduate student mental health initiatives on campus. She paints during her spare time and auctions them for a cause she finds important. So, um, I have a lot of questions about you and, and your research and everything, but can I ask you what, what uh, your paints? That's amazing. Uh, I barely know how to draw a house or a dog. <laughs> My drawings are really bad. So I really admire, you know, artistic um, people. Uh, wh what do you action your, your paintings for? So last year, uh, I'm sure everyone remembers uh, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, there was a blast uh, at the seaport um, from okay. the, uh, like they had some goods stored in that area and there was this big blast in mm. uh, Lebanon during, in the middle of uh, yes. COVID-19 last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. So that time uh, we raised an auction uh, to raise money for that. Mm. And so I auctioned a bunch of my paintings, like I think six of my paintings for that Ooh. at that time. Um, and then later, I also auctioned some paintings for uh, like kids who go through depression. Oh. Uh, uh, so that's just a local event here in yeah. North Scotia. So I auctioned some there as well. Oh, um, that's so, that's so cool <laughs> and and such a nice uh, way to use your your hobby, right? Do you do this um, outside of the lab when you have any free time or? Yeah. So. 
I actually don't have, especially now, I don't really have much time to paint. Mm-hmm. But uh, whenever I see something like this, uh, if there is a opportunity where I, I'm also like, I don't want to just paint for myself anymore. Mm-hmm. I I feel like I'm at least in the last couple of years, all the paintings that I've made, it's either to give to a friend, so some customized uh, paintings for them, or mm-hmm. uh, it's for the auction. So unless there is like at least recently, unless there is a reason for me actually to do that i haven't uh been able like i haven't uh, just gone to do it for myself yes uh, right now and like you know i'm also in my final year now so mm-hmm. i don't really have much time to think about it that much exactly so, yeah but it's always nice to actually do it for someone else than yes. for myself like i also find that i put more attention to painting mm-hmm. when i'm doing it for a cause um, well, that's that's really cool because obviously you know, uh, or or the person that is gonna receive the painting, maybe they will tell you some characteristics about what they will like, or maybe you know the person if it's your friends or your family. And it's true, you put attention to the details, like when you, I don't know, when you sew, when you sew something, or when you do, I don't know, like something similar to painting. So it's 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 true. I agree. You put details when someone else is gonna receive your art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's, it's such a nice way of um, of using your art, to be honest, and such a good cause as well. So kudos for that as well. Uh, you must, I, I, I'm pretty sure you feel really proud uh, of, of the outcome, you know, of your art. So that's super, super cool. Yeah, um, thank you. So, right. So now we know that you you paint and that's that's awesome. Even if, unfortunately, on the, third, on the last year of PhD, you don't have that much time to, uh, unfortunately, you know, because last year of PhD is always tough. Um, so I'm really curious about your field of research. So would you like to tell us a bit more what you do in your PhD thesis? Yeah, so overall, my PhD thesis has been centered around understanding cancer immunology and mm. cancer immunotherapies. Mm-hmm. So I study two different types of cancer immunotherapies. One is photodynamic therapy of cancer, and one is oncolytic virus-based cancer immunotherapy. Ooh. So photodynamic therapy of cancer is something that I've been actively pursuing in the last three years of my mm-hmm. PhD. And so, for the, so it is abbreviated as PDT, mm-hmm. photodynamic therapy. So how that works is similar to the concept of chemotherapy. So mm-hmm. it is a chemical compound, but and then you inject it into the patient. And similar to chemotherapy, it, spread, it can spread to all parts of the body. Uh, however, what, what is different in photodynamic therapy is that the compound in itself is mm. not active. Mm. So even though it's there in all parts of the body, it only gets activated in the presence of light of a certain wavelength. Mm. So let's say you have melanoma patients, then you only put that light on the surface of the skin where there is cancer. Mm. So even if you have the compound everywhere else, it only gets activated where you shine the light and you can shine the light specifically on the cancer and that's where it gets activated and that's where it's gonna start killing the cells. So it's different from chemotherapy in the sense that it's much more targeted to the region of the cancer. So there is less overall toxicity. But the other advantage, too, is that these compounds can accumulate, even if you give it intravenously, it can accumulate only in the cancer tissue and not have any residual accumulation in normal tissues. 
Mm. Although even if there is some residual ac- accumulation, it's okay because the compound is inactive anyway. Yeah. So that's the advantage of this one. Mm. Uh, so that's that's one therapy that I'm studying for the last three years. Uh, this one is in collaboration with a prof in US actually. Mm. Uh, she's a chemist and she develops um, like novel compounds for photodynamic therapy. And in our lab, I study the immunological aspects of those photodynamic therapies. Mm. Wow, that's it blows my mind. I mean, <laughs> that sounds super interesting. Um, I've um, I'm really interested in the in the in the world of uh, cancer therapies and stuff. So, um, um, so I try to keep up to date with the latest uh, therapies as much as I can because I find it really interesting. And I was aware of phototherapy for different type of cancers uh, because uh, some researchers they develop. Uh, nanoparticles and I know that the nanoparticles can be functionalized or things like that and they respond to the wavelength so you kind of excite those particles with the light and then the patient gets treated if that makes sense because the particles are injected before um, yeah. but you you were referring to your this this latest part of your, of your project you were referring to compounds so is it like a chemical rather than a particle yeah. right right So what we work on right now are ruthenium-based metal transition complexes. Mm. So these are just chemical compounds. Uh, They are not encapsulated in nanoparticles or anything yet. Uh, These are all completely new compounds that uh, our collaborator in US is developing. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe in the future, we might think about encapsulating them in nanoparticles, but right now we are just working with those compounds and we don't bought them because they are like completely new. So yeah, that is a long way for us to go in understanding them. Yeah, but it's it's really good. So you you do this new or your collaborators synthesize the new compounds, right? And then you kind of activate them with the light in the patient, like in situ. So it's a massive, um, it's like a really com- unconventional way of, of treating the cancer, right? But at the same time, it sounds what cancer needs, which is to be selective and to actually target that. So I have a couple of questions, like um, depending on the cancer, uh, because obviously not every cancer is the same, um, although some guidelines like um, proliferation of the cells, they might be the same, but they might have, uh, I'm sure they have different genetic uh, pathways and things like that. So will you use different lights depending on the cancer or would you rather focus on changing the compound for that cancer that you are studying? So it completely depends on, uh, like it, it depends on a few factors actually. So not all compounds will get activated at all wavelengths of light. Yeah. So compounds will have specific wavelengths, right? So it depends on how deep your tumor is. The compounds that we are developing right now, we, our special focus is actually to develop them to get activated with near IR wavelengths. Oh, and yeah. those are the deep ones. Mm. Um, generally, it's hard to develop PDT compounds which can be activated at that wavelength. Most of the compounds that are approved right now, which are in clinics, are all either red or visible wavelength, nothing in the near IR range. Um, so that's, that's the focus for our project. Um, and our focus is also melanoma. But um, like not all the compounds that we develop get activated at near IR either. Mm. So we are just trying to, like since our focus is that, we are just trying to push for those compounds, like 
you know, if she synthesizes like 50 compounds, we have like five to 10 compounds, which can get activated at that wavelength. Um, but depending on the uh, tumor, depending on the depth of the tumor, um, so it could be a combination of two different things, right? Like we might have to change the compound to accommodate for that depth so that that compound actually can get activated by the mm. wavelengths, right? Um, if it is very deep, then you definitely want a compound which can get activated by the uh, if it's not, then you're good to go with a compound which can get activated with red wavelength or visible wavelength. Mm. So I think it could depend on that, plus uh, the selectivity of the compound too. The ones we are studying right now, we are only studying them in the context of melanoma. Mm -hmm. um, that's, the, that's just a, a like focus of this project. Um, but so as you mentioned, genetics of every cancer is different, so it is possible what we are studying in melanoma may not work for a different ca cancer, mm -hmm. um, right? But that is less to, uh, like, we'll have to see how that works, at least in our case. Yeah, of course. Also, cancer is something that is so big, you know, it has so many things and also so many areas of study, like only a study in pharmacology of a single drug. It's, mm -hmm. it's a the well, many, many PGSDs in itself. So obviously, um, it sounds also like a novel therapy for for you guys and also for the type of things you are studying. I think it's it's super interesting. Like it blows my mind, you know. Um, uh, and also the um, the IR wavelengths are safe to use with the patient. I assume, right? Uh, right. When they are getting the treatment. Yeah. Because they're also very targeted, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's really really cool, and also it sounds like really really promising uh for for cancer and melanomas as well are so 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 bad you know um also i think uh and i've been guilty of this as well uh people don't really get the effect of the sun damage right uh in the skin uh so yes of, of course everyone hears about melanoma but i don't think it's particularly consider like where what you will consider for example lung cancer if you smoke Right, you kind of tie them together, but just because you you sunbathe and things like that, you don't particularly think about oh, I'm gonna get melanoma. Um, I've been guilty of this as well, you know. When I in my young age, uh, <laughs> I've been guilty of doing too much uh, sunbathing because obviously where I'm from in Spain, we have that a lot. So I've been guilty of, of that as well. But um, right. it's like a really promising uh, therapy for this particular type of cancer. So. I will actually ask you questions for the next three hours about your project, but <laughs> <laughs> I have other questions as well that the that the audience will find interesting. Um, so you are in your final year of PhD. Uh, yeah. con congratulations as well for that. You know, amidst amidst the the, the pandemic and all of that. So well, congrats for that for doing that brave uh, effort of finishing your PhD in these particularly difficult times. Um, I. I wanted to ask you, because obviously you got your bachelor's from India, right? Mm -hmm. So would you like to share with us uh, a bit of your steps? Like how did you uh, arrive to this point, you know, in Canada doing this amazing project, please? The, um, what's what's your, your, your story? I am so curious to know about it. <laughs> so my story is definitely not a linear one. Okay, yeah, uh, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so growing up, uh, during school and high school, I was a math geek. Mm -hmm. I, I was still I was still good at science and all the other subjects as well. But I was proud 
to be called as a math geek than mm-hmm. a science geek. So <laughs> I always wanted to become a mathematician. I, I wanted to do research in math. Um, so that, yeah. was, that was always my dream. Um, <laughs> so even in my high school, my main subject was math. I actually did not study science at all during mm. my high school. I only studied math, physics, um, and chemistry mm. during my high school. Those were the only three uh, subjects and, uh, and then languages. Mm. Um, but uh, so I, I also wanted to do engineering and, you know, like continue in mathematics. Mm-hmm. But um, so in India, Indian Institute of Technology is at like the, like the highest level of uh, engineering system, I guess. Mm. Um, so they have their own entrance examination that you oh. need to take and uh, pass. Mm-hmm. And not just pass, but based on your score in that entrance exam, there are different IITs at different locations in India. Mm-hmm. And depending on that score, you uh, you might be able to apply to some IITs to some departments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided to do that exam just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> yeah, that was never my primary goal. So mm-hmm. there, there, because it's like the highest, like the top year of engineering, uh, like universities in India, mm-hmm. there are like during high school, there are many places which only focus on training you for those exams, mm-hmm. like okay. not for anything else. Right. So I did not go to one of those places. So mm-hmm. my main focus never was to go to that uh, university. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do like I was, I never even thought about it. I don't know why I just, that was just <laughs> not in my uh, mind, I guess. So I was just in a regular high school doing regular things, but uh, one of my like profs during high school or the teachers during high school, they thought I should give it, I should write that exam. They were like, Hmm. you know what? I think you have the capability, like you should do it. I was like, sure, why not? Like, and at that time, taking exams was still fun for me. I was like, okay, exams, let's do this. Yeah, let's go for it. (laughs) Like I, I loved taking exams it was always so much fun for me to oh my gosh you know, <laughs> <laughs> to do that uh, to test myself and like mm. to see where I, how I do and whatnot so I was like sure let's do it and then yeah. um, I gave the exam I passed the exam and I got into IIT um, then after I went there um, like I had different options uh, different departments that I could choose and for some reason I thought I want to try biotechnology mm. uh, so I went into that department. It was still an engineering uh, degree, mm-hmm. but in biotechnology. So there was some science there, uh, in, especially in the last two years. But even after going there, like I still experimented with different subjects. I had the liberty to actually do that at IIT, which I'm very grateful for. Like mm-hmm. I took subjects uh, related to math, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, that, um, although I did not do as well, as I did during my high school and whatnot, uh, that was probably my wake-up call. Okay, maybe, you know, science may be better. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I did, ta- I did experiment with different subjects. I took physics, I took chemistry, I took math, uh, I took, um, you know, like science, core science subjects, like microbiology, immunology, mm. and whatnot. Um, but eventually, I think after my first year at IIT, I kind of fell in love with the aspect of research and mm-hmm. um, like microbiology and uh, is what I fell in love with at, at first. Mm-hmm. And I really liked like actually working with something that you can't even see 
that yes <laughs> it's so complex to understand mm. right um like math you can put it on the paper you can put that equation but for this one it was just like there is no equation there there is no, no. You know, <laughs> it's a living is, system <laughs> yeah like there is no question there is no solution like you know mm -hmm. there is, nothing is straightforward there right exactly um, and i think i just fell in love with that after i um, did my undergrad so after the first year of my undergrad i i kind of told myself that's it i'm doing research in uh, like related to science hmm. but after my second year i knew i wanted to do cancer research so mm -hmm. from then onwards all my internships that i did during uh, during my uh, summer holidays and whatnot everything was geared towards cancer research in different mm -hmm. labs in india and whatnot and um, yeah so during my final year when i was ready to apply for uh, phd's like that was just my natural next step at yeah. that point because i was interested in cancer research um so my friend uh, during undergrad actually told me about this lab that i'm in right now yeah uh, he was like hey they do all this stuff that you'll be interested in and it was really cool because uh, the lab folk works with oncolytic viruses and mm -hmm. does immunology in the context of cancer research so i was like yeah. that's what i want i want like different elements so mm -hmm. i wanted the like the aspect of having that uh, you know it was microbiology but also immunology and then tying it together with cancer research i really like that uh, aspect uh, so i applied to this lab i wrote to the prof and we had an interview he said okay and that's it. <laughs> so how i landed here <laughs> wow and how did you how do you confront it uh traveling from your home country to canada because for me that was a massive challenge when i left spain uh to well i started uh, working as technician to get some experience before my phd and then i moved on to my phd and now i'm still here with my postdocs um but how do you confront it, that because obviously you just summarized in like five to six minutes uh, a really big step in in your life, you know, and it's it, and it's also quite far. <laughs> so how did you? How was this this change for you? Because you seem like you are really self driven and you have a lot of confidence in in what you want to do and your your end goal and that's where I want to go. And I think that's amazing. Also, I think it's amazing that you love math so much because for me, math is like wow. Like I see an <laughs> I see an I use equations in my in my job, but obviously nothing like actually doing maths. So mm -hmm. it blows my mind that you like math so much. But that's not the, the that's not my question. <laughs> how did you how did you confront this change and this traveling to pursue your PhD? Yeah, so I think when I first decided to move to Canada, I kind of did not fully understand yeah. like what I was doing. Yeah. For me, I was like, oh yay, I'm going to do a PhD. I'm going to be working on cancer research, cancer immunology. Like that's the only thing I had in my mind. Exactly. I think my parents were freaking out for me because for them it was a big step that I was actually moving out of the country mm. and that was also my like my first flight ever in my life. I never oh, took a flight before. Um, so I really did not think about all that, right? Like I was, I feel like I was very, you know, amateur. I was like, I was just caught up in the moment that I am going to be doing a PhD and I really did not think about anything else. But it definitely <laughs> hit me after I got onto that flight and I was like, I, I did not even know what I'm supposed to do on that flight, right? So I'm like reading all the pamphlets. Yeah. Every 
I found and, you know, trying to understand, okay, what am, how am I supposed to sit on the flight? Like, you know, what am I supposed to eat? Like, um, everything was completely new. It was definitely challenging, especially after coming to Canada. Uh, the intensity of, you know, not fitting in, the complete cultural change yes. for me. Um, like, I, I, I knew how it would be, I guess, in a little, a little bit, because at IIT, we still had a... Uh, like we had uh, foreign exchange students mm -hmm. who came to IIT for semester exchange programs and whatnot. So we did have the environment to kind of mm -hmm. expose us to the foreign uh, like culture. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, because Indian culture is very uh, orthodox or conservative, you know, like uh, in general. Uh, so I kind of knew how it would be, but I think it was definitely a very big cultural shock for me. It took a very long time um, for me to kind of fit in. Mm -hmm. um, I tried really hard in my first year, but it was just not possible. Uh, I I was just not able to fit in. Yeah. Um, it is, it was, I mean, it, the people I was surrounded by, it was, it, we just had such, completely different ideas yes. um, about different things. Uh, not to say that it is wrong or anything, but no, I was yeah. just, I was just not used to any of that. And mm. a lot of things were completely new for me and I was not even sure what was going on. It was definitely very hard uh, in that way, culturally, like I think first two years was a struggle for me um, in that sense. And uh, that also brings on the imposter syndrome Oh yeah, you know, our our friends. <laughs> yeah, they like so common in academia. Mm. Um, so for me, that was uh, very big, um, like research-wise in the mm. department itself. I felt like I did not fit in with the department. Mm. Um, um, I so mine was also a little bit tricky because in my lab, I'm the only one from microbiology and immunology department. Everyone else in my lab is in pathology department. Mm -hmm. And my lab is located in, uh, along with other pathology labs. Um, so location-wise, I'm not with my department at all. Mm -hmm. okay. So whenever I go to my department to, for, to do some paperwork or whatever, I just feel so odd. I was like, okay, like I don't really know these people, you know. Mm -hmm. it was, that was always a very big challenge for me, not fitting in at all. Like even today, I really <laughs> don't know many people in my department. Like, you know. Um, yeah, that was very big challenge. Uh, it took time for me to get used to that and mm. to accept it and to move forward with it. I'm not like the challenge still continues. Um, it definitely did not go away, but I learned how to live with the challenge and how to find my way around it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's that's also called resilience, right? right. Um, when we have this this continuous challenge in front of us that we know is part of our day-to-day -day. we just uh, get used to it but we we gain resilience right mm -hmm. uh, and you are going from a surviving state to I got this some days yeah. it's going to be harder some days it's going to be easier but I got this in front of me and it lives with me um, I completely uh, em empathize with everything that you described uh, for me, also moving from Spain to the UK was a massive cultural shock. Mm -hmm. I think in a less degree, like you moving from India to Canada, I think the cultural shock is less moving from Spain to the UK. Um, 
but still you know you get you you are born and raised in a particular culture and environment with you know, with your parents your friends usually they have the same cultural um i don't know yeah the same stuff like like you do right mm -hmm. and then you moved you move alone to a different country and i think this is something that you can only know how does it feel like if you do it you can think about how hard it is to move to another country and how it will be to live uh, with people that they speak another language, with people mm -hmm. that they, they eat a food that is completely different than yours. Um, yeah. the, the, the schedules around the day are different. The shops are open at different times. Um, everyone has different ideology than yours. Mm -hmm. And all these things, they seem quite vague when you talk about them, but when you move by yourself to another place, it's like a massive uh change and a massive disruption to your whole thing and and then your body reacts with it yeah um and this is something that happened to me as well when i moved mm -hmm. to the uk um i had a lot of acne all of a sudden i've never been someone that has had acne and when i moved to the uk my skin changed my hair changed everything uh and and not to mention you know the emotional change that goes with it um yeah. so i know you described it as a challenge and it, it it was definitely a challenge and like i said i completely i'm with you in everything that you two said and especially when our old friend the imposter syndrome it comes in the worst moment right when you need yeah. it the less that's when it comes like hello i'm here to make your life even more difficult <laughs> um yeah. so i know you describe it as a challenge and now you gain this resilience but i think uh, I hope that now by you saying these things out loud, you realize how far you've come yeah. and, and how much you learn from the entire process, because it does take a lot of time. And yeah. <laughs> obviously it takes time, but on top of that, we have our job to do, mm -hmm. which is what we moved for in the first place. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. So it's like two massive layers or many, many layers of things that are on top of us um so when you when you were having you know these these thoughts that i don't fit in or how long this is gonna take me um when when i was going through that stuff i find it particularly useful to have a support network around mm -hmm. me of people from uh that they understood what i was going for what, what i was going through um, so my group of friends at the time, obviously they are still my friends, but now we are spread across the world. That's what academia also brings. Um, mm -hmm. we, we were six or seven friends and we were from different countries. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a couple of friends from Spain, but to me, what was useful was to count with their support because they knew the same struggles that I was going through. Uh, mm -hmm. My friends in Spain, for example, I don't think they will ever understand what it is to put yourself in front of that situation. Right. So I'm interested to, to discuss with you this, like, what did you find useful um, when you were in the middle of all these things? Um, so some, a little bit of what you explained as well, like uh, some of my friends from my undergrad, like who decided to pursue higher studies, like we moved, uh, they moved to Germany or US and whatnot. So I was in contact with them, um, you know, like 
sharing <laughs> sharing yes. our troubles together <laughs> and whatnot definitely um but um like i don't really i mean that was nice definitely without mm-hmm. having that structure of you know support in some way mm-hmm. uh, especially when you don't have support where you are like a, yeah. you know like around me i did not have any support at uh, at the time at all um so that was a very important part of uh, my first couple of years here in canada uh, but i think it like while sharing was important that was not the solution right like mm-hmm. uh it was important for us to stay grounded and to understand that it's not you alone mm-hmm. uh which is very important but yeah. then it was it was also important for me to go towards the solution mm-hmm. like what can i do about the situation so i either i can just tie myself in their room and uh, you know struggle with whatever is going on or i just let it be yeah whatever is happening around me that's going to happen but i need to proactively yes look uh, take steps right mm-hmm. so that also meant uh, not going out to certain areas or mm-hmm. you know uh, with certain people which is fine mm-hmm. i accepted that as a part of my life yes <laughs> <laughs> i don't generally go out too much here <laughs> yeah um, i only go out like very occasionally once in few months or something like that mm-hmm. and only with trusted group of people yeah. um uh so that's fine um so the, the, those are some things that i just brought down to myself i was like okay it's okay if i don't go out if i it's mm-hmm. okay if i don't hang out at a bar on a sunday mm-hmm. you know like it's okay if i just chill at home or yeah. it's okay if i go to lab like it was finding what worked for me uh yeah. and like you mentioned at the end of the day i i just kept telling myself the reason i'm here yeah i'm not here to fit in the culture i am here to do my work <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> i'm here to do my research to get my phd and that was uh, that was what kept me going mm-hmm. um so it was about like i i accepted what was around me it mm-hmm. it does it did not mean that i changed my views or i changed my culture or anything like that yeah. i just accepted that that's how it is and that's yeah. okay i'm just going to live with that mm-hmm. uh and focus on what is important for me which is my research mm-hmm. so that's kind of what i kept doing so even for the imposter syndrome uh it was real like it was quite bad um uh, in like to an extent where i was not even comfortable talking to the people in my department or uh going for any social activities in the department itself like not even outside right mm. uh because i just did not want to even be there i was just i yes. just felt like such an imposter but eventually i told myself that i'm going to find my own way of mm-hmm. interacting with them so um i started uh taking active steps to be involved with the uh, student societies mm. eventually i became the president of the student society Wow. which um which really changed a lot for me uh because then having the like being in that position of the president of the student society like i i actually had chance to interact with many people mm. who i did not get to interact with before because of my imposter syndrome yes. or due to the circumstances right so i think that really changed for me being involved in that way uh in that leadership position i i i also had like a like a authority or like a purpose to feel good yeah. about myself and you know what i was doing 
and as the president, like my main focus was always about the grad student mental health. So I was actually going to people I never spoke to before and I was <laughs> pitching them uh, my ideas to improve grad student mental health. <laughs> Which when I think about it, it's just very, you know, like very different compared to what I was in the first two years. Yeah. But it took some time and I'm glad that I took those steps to change things uh, in a way that would fit me, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think it's fantastic uh, what, you, what, you, what you've done. And, and I hope that you feel super proud of, of all the things <laughs> that you achieved because uh, first of all, I have to say that it takes a lot of courage to speak <laughs> about these things out loud let alone being the president of, of a society that you actually need to inspire and motivate others, right? Right. Um, so it takes a lot of courage from yourself to actually do those steps because I think one of the problems that are with imposter syndrome, ironically, because, uh, and especially after doing the, these, these podcast episodes, I can, I can see that a lot of people have it, one of the ironic things with imposter syndrome is that uh, people tend to think that we are alone suffering it and that's not the case. So right. to, to have this, because I think you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you went through a period of self-awareness and, and self-respect as well to put names on stuff and feelings and uh, lack of motivation or I don't fit, you know, you put names to what was happening to you. Yeah. And like you said, instead of being by yourself or in a room, like, okay, I don't know what to do. You actually confronted those things and you went to the next step, which is take all of that that is happening to me. I'm going to understand what is happening and I'm going to inspire others and I'm going to teach others. So all yeah. of that, it takes a massive amount of courage mm -hmm. and like I, I mean I've only met you today but I have, I'm feeling super super proud of you right now just by listening to this because it does take a lot of courage you know when I started this podcast series I know that I also had to share things that were going on with me in order to inspire others and in order to in inspire the next generation you need to tell them what's going on that's why these episodes are also not everything rainbows. Like, oh yes, science is amazing. Well, it is amazing. <laughs> it's the best job in the world to me, but it has several things that you need to bear in mind when you get into this world. So yeah. I think you are an amazing example and an amazing role model of overcoming these capabilities and inspiring others and teaching others how to, how to overcome them. Because um, I think that's the point where you can start teaching others, right? You need to become yeah. self-aware of what's happening with you and yeah. see what works for you. And I think mm -hmm. um, maybe you'll agree with me on this as well. When you are in science, I think sometimes, I mean, this not only happens in science, but obviously apply to science. Sometimes you are really worried about what others think of you. Um, if others think that you are progressing if you right. are doing your experiments right. So to become able to talk to yourself and say, I'm going to see what works for me. The rest can see what they work for them. That's really, really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely hard. 
And for me, like along with the imposter syndrome, what really drove me to actually be more proactive and take steps to actually help others was also uh, like a me to my own me to movement during grad school. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely not my first instance of going through a me too moment. Uh, I had that, like I, I went through that during my undergrad as well and even during my high school. But during my high, uh, during the grad school, like this was in the middle of my grad school and I had to go through that incident. And it was quite shattering uh, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was completely like mentally so unstable. Like I had uh, depression, I had anxiety. Oh um, like I had, I used to get panic attacks so regularly like it was very challenging to go through that it it kind of brought me to a point where I could not even say hi to my prof oh Um, my god like you know so it was really really hard after going through that uh, that period it took me like six months or so to talk to my lab members to say hi to Mm. my prof and just uh, even talk science with him you know Mm. Um, so once I went through that I really like I felt you know, like we call victims and then yeah. the, right, the real term is survivor. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something with that. Like I was on my own mental health journey at that point. I was uh, seeking therapy. I was trying out different uh, like cognitive behavior therapy. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was doing different things for myself mm-hmm. to uh, help myself. But at the same time, uh, when I started seeking help, I was a little frustrated that most of it was not geared towards grad students. It yeah. was mostly due to, towards undergrads because undergrad population is really high at yes. the university. So most of the resources are towards that. And I'm, and I'm there sitting and I'm like, hey, my problem is not my marks. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have exams. I don't have finals. I'm like... Yeah. I'm, I want to do my research right so it was really hard so um, that time I decided I need to do something where these these are oriented towards grad students so the first thing that I did was I decided to organize um, mental health weeks within the faculty of medicine Mm. and for that I basically went to like the people who generally do the mental health workshops on campus but I went to them and I basically sat down with them and I'm like hey you guys are doing great, but I want you to do a workshop for us in the Faculty of Medicine grad students. But here are the list of problems that we could go through. Like mm-hmm. our problems are imposter syndrome, problems with the supervisor, uncertainty with our future, with our research, you know, mm-hmm. failed experiments. Like these are, these are our problems, like not having a work-life balance. Like our problems are completely different from undergrad. So if you can get it towards us, will really appreciate it. So that was my first uh, move towards focusing on uh, grad student mental health. Mm -hmm. So I started organizing those workshops, like two workshops every semester. Mm. And then I decided I wanted to do more. And then I contested uh, for the president of the grad student society. Mm. And that's when everything just took off. But yeah. Well, well, it just blows my mind all the things that that you do because you, well, obviously you know because you founded them, but they are you don't know how important that is to 
to count with that support for someone that starts fresh the PhD or even in the middle, to be honest, because, um, mm -hmm. well, especially in the in Canada and United States, you know, that the PhDs are so long that uh, you really need a lot of support while yeah. you are doing your research. I mean, in the UK, <laughs> the PhDs are three to four years long. Um, and you still need a lot of uh, a lot of help, but obviously they happen quicker. Uh, in mm -hmm. you know where you are based, they are longer, so you really need a lot of support throughout all that marathon. Um, and I completely agree with you because I think we are part of a university, but we are a completely different population, and sometimes mm -hmm. it can feel so isolating, right? You are not an undergrad, but you are not a staff member. So yeah. where am I? Because I already got my degrees. I'm voluntarily putting myself in front of another degree. And, yeah. But I'm an adult, right? I need work-life balance. Some PhD students, uh, females, they are moms. So right. you, need, you need also childcare. You have childcare issues, work-life balance. Um, so to, to count, like I will actually consider more a department or a university like yours that they have that specific uh, therapy and, and help for PhD students. I will consider that uh, university more than mm -hmm. another university that doesn't have it because right. I think this is something, um, like I don't know if it happened to you, but when I wanted to do a PhD, I had it a bit uh, idealized. I know mm -hmm. that science was hard because I did my master internship and then I work as a technician. So I was already exposed to failed experiments, uh, you know, working on Sundays because that experiment has to work and then it doesn't work. So your weekend ends really, really badly. Um, so I was exposed to that as well. But I think once you are in the PhD and you are actually doing it, then you get like, okay, this is hard. I need, yeah. I need, I'm going through changes and feelings that I didn't even think that was possible to feel. Um, and, you know, you are starting to become independent as a scientist and you need to mm -hmm. report your supervisor about your experiments, about your ideas. Um, so that's also challenging as well. And there's yeah. a lot of people that they have issues communicating with supervisors because they don't really know how to report the science and they don't really know how to how to manage the situation. So, mm -hmm. I think what you did, you know, found, founding that applied to that population in the university is so, so, so good. And, and I'm pretty sure you are inspiring a lot of people. And it's like I said before, it takes so much courage to, mm -hmm. to do that because you kind of went, you know, from the ashes, right? You, you pick up those ashes from, from yourself and then you did something that is fantastic, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, thank you. The the thing though, like I'm very grateful that when I started talking about it, everything was so supportive around me. Like, mm. um, you know, like the first time I remember I spoke to our assistant dean of mm -hmm. faculty of medicine. She was so uh, like receptive of the idea and she was like, let's do more. Like, tell yeah. me. And then, you know, even when I spoke to the dean of faculty of medicine, he literally like, um, so we kind of started it off by surveying the grad student population here mm. uh, for their mental health struggles. And we made a PowerPoint and we showed that to the de assistant dean, and then she passed it on to the dean. And mm. as soon as he saw it, he wanted us to meet with him next morning at 630, right? Oh my and God. We, okay. <laughs> And then we sat down and he was like, 
like i felt so bad going through this like please let us know like be, like we want to do something about it right mm. like they like so it was like they were not completely aware of the situation but as soon as they were made aware of it they have been extremely proactive and they have been supporting me in everything you know like whether i do the mental health weeks none of this would have happened if they did not support me or mm. if they said hey that's not important focus on your research right yes that even my supervisor like if he ever said no you can't do these things outside lab you can you should only do the research none of this would have happened right of course so i'm definitely very happy that the department was there was very receptive the entire faculty the entire university hmm. like everything even the peer support network that i'm developing right now uh, that uh, that is mentioned in the bio so even that like the it is completely funded by the faculty of medicine so mm. you know like there is like very good support and i'm not exactly trying to invent something new what mm. i'm trying to do for the most part is taking the resources we have around us but modifying them to our population like most of them are for undergrads now we are just changing how they are and we are saying okay let's do this same thing but let's do this for grad students mm-hmm. so yeah without well, their support none of this would have happened for sure <laughs> exactly yeah well i do think you are doing something new because there there is a lack of support in in my opinion in universities about this and not only you know where you are based but around mm-hmm. the world um I went to to uni in Spain obviously throughout my bachelor's and my master's and I've never heard about programs like this because I think mm-hmm. uh maybe it's cultural or society no one prepares you for this you know and then when you go to grad school then you encounter all these issues and we I don't know why we always tend to think that we are always alone and you never find someone that is going through the same things as you but maybe that person is also going through these things but they don't want to talk about it because it's stigmatized in the outside right so i think the platform that you created it's it's amazing but i also think it's really important to highlight the supports that you got from your university from the medicine department and also from your supervisor unfortunately that's one of the reasons why students leave academia after the phd because right. they have such a bad experience and i feel so sad about it not only because of the experience that they go through but also because science is harshly criticized because of these things so a lot of people they leave academia they don't want to be professors they don't want to teach other people because they just don't like science anymore because they mm-hmm. don't enjoy it yeah. and I'll, although i think you should dedicate your life and do something that you love and that you feel passion about it otherwise life makes no sense yeah. um you i think science sometimes is harshly criticized because of all these these things that happens around mental health that i don't know why in the 21st century this is still stigmatized therapy is also stigmatized mm-hmm. um yeah so to count with the support from your university it makes a huge difference not only for the people that you are going to and that you are inspiring but also for your day to day life because i'm pretty sure all these experiences that you've been through they shaped you right yeah yeah of course 100% definitely like mm. i can i don't even know how it how it would have been like if any of these people whether the assistant dean or dean or the supervisor they said no this yeah. is not important you know like i don't know how things would have been but it is only because as soon as i open my voice like as mm. soon as i voice my opinions they actually like understood and they realized like some of them are like 
when I was a grad student, I went through this too, you know, like it's, it's sometimes just thinking back about what you have been through. That's what you need to help the people in front of you, right? Exactly. Like if you just stay in your own shoes and you're like, okay, I'm a prof today and mm. that's all matters, right? Like that's not going to change anything. But once you think, okay, I was a student before I'm a prof today, but I, I went through those steps and now I'm here. So that's yeah. when the change comes. And I'm really glad that people were, you know, able to look back in time and actually understand the struggles of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> yes, yes. No, it's amazing. And, you know, this is also going to help a lot to professors and PIs uh, to hear about these issues and to be, and to be conscious about their yeah. students a bit more. You know, yeah. I know there is amazing PIs out there that um, they have been through different stuff in their lives and their careers, and they are going to take those experiences and those testimonies to teach their students a bit better or to be a bit more considerate when a student is complaining about mental health issues, you know, because I think this is also stigmatized in academia. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing as taking time off because I don't feel well mentally, you know, you, it's not good for you to go to work when you have a cold, well, especially now with Corona, (laughs) but uh, it's not good for you to go to work when you feel down or when you have a cold. But if you have a bad day or uh, you are depressed or you have anxiety, then you have to go to work. That's not important. So I think platforms like yours and the support from your university is also going to help people in the top ranked positions Mm -hmm. to think about what's going on with the next generation of students, right? Yeah, for sure, Um, yeah obviously there are exceptions and there's people that obviously they don't want to work and they are Mm -hmm. just, you know, taking the pace. There's examples about everything everywhere. Right. But I believe that there is generally good students um, suffering a lot and they don't know how to vocalize this um, because they don't put labels on it or because they don't find anyone that thinks like them around. Um, Exactly. So I think what you have created and what you have in your hands in your hands has so much power. Um, it's it's so 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 good, and I am honestly I'm I'm so proud of you. And I only met you today. <laughs> it's 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 so good. Um, so um, obviously now we we know at this point of the interview we know all this advocacy that you do um we know what's what's your super cool science with the phototherapy and immunotherapy as well which is so 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 cool like we spoke before um so now taking all of this together uh obviously you you need to finish the the PhD you need to write and all of that uh, which i'm pretty sure you're gonna smash it um <laughs> what do you see yourself doing are you do you think you are going to continue in academia do you think you will go somewhere else because you don't want to be i, I don't know perhaps teach uh, uh, a lecture what do you think mm-hmm. you you are gonna do with all this nice stuff that, uh, that you have right now in your hands so i have always wanted to be in academia and become mm-hmm. a prof like that's something that i had in my mind for i don't know nine years now mm-hmm. um so I always, like, I generally have this very, very long-term goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they change a little bit, like, you know, from math to cancer research. Yeah. So that was a change. But overall, I, my goal is still the same. I want to stay in research. I want to stay in academia. I want to have my own lab. And uh, 
my like what so that's that's always been my dream and you know like i obviously face challenges with science as well there is no lying about that um, mm-hmm. everyone goes through those things yeah but um, thankfully so far that did not change my overall goals okay. um, i i still like to believe that like you can you can shape your own future mm-hmm. um and i would like to believe that people are kind and uh, even though in that moment it might look like they don't understand what's going on i'm mm-hmm. i'm hopeful that by raising your voice and expressing the views you can bring changes around you mm-hmm. so i'm hoping that uh, you know like i would like to like after phd i would like to become a postdoc and eventually uh, look for a professor position have my own lab and what not and like for me like i personally believe that you know like we go through different difficult stuff we see difficult stuff around us whether it is how uh, like things are going doing done wrong in academia yeah. you know for example which is such a you know like we we are talking more and more about it which is great uh, we are like exposing all the things right mm-hmm. but i like i i believe in taking those experiences and changing them like okay. when i become a prof these are the things i don't want to do based on exactly. what i experienced or what i seen around me right mm-hmm. like it doesn't mean that i don't want to become a prof now i still want to be a prof but i know what i do want to do and what i don't want to do you know exactly, like i yeah. think that is important and um, so that's how i'm thinking right now and i'm still hoping <laughs> uh to become a prof so we'll see <laughs> well um uh i think you are going to be one of the best examples of professor that one can have in academia uh and i'm pretty sure the the future students that you had are going to be so happy to be in your group because i think academia needs more people like you academia needs more inspiring uh professors and lecturers that they empathize with the students and that they they put themselves in their place you know um you you took all these things from your past and from your career and you are going to make something amazing with it and that's going to shape as well how you teach your students mm-hmm. and i think this is so important and i talk about this with other guests from the podcast i think academia needs inspiring people in academia needs more people that they love what they do Right. because teachers when you are in high school and when you are in grad school your supervisors they can shape obviously the path is all is 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 is, is ours yeah we we need to do our own research we need to carry on our own lives blah 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 but the input that you have from from supervisors can definitely shape you and yeah. change your view about science and your research and probably problems with supervisors is one of the biggest reasons why people decide to ditch academia especially right. after the phd because why would i put myself doing a postdoc if i'm going to have more of the same with another supervisor in another place yeah. um uh which i mean if you don't want to do academia is 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 fine don't do something that you are forced that you feel you are forced to do right but academia needs to be more full of 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 people that are inspiring like you and obviously linked with the the purpose of this podcast academia needs more female role models mm-hmm. like like you you know like i went through this stuff and i am in the top because i worked a lot to achieve this place 
and against any bias that were around me. Um, right. So I think like your students are going to be super happy in your group. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I admire you so much and, and everything, honestly, like everything that you have accomplished and that I am absorbing right now with this interview is it's amazing. Um, but I wanted to navigate through a last topic uh, for this interview, like we, we just recently mentioned it, and you know the podcast, the, the mission of this podcast is to showcase uh, fantastic female scientific role models like yourself. Um, so I wanted to navigate a bit more around all the women in STEM movement. What do you think about it? Uh, do you think this is something that you will implement as well in your PI career or something that you even are going to implement in your postdocs or even now during your PhD? Yes, uh, for sure. Like, thankfully, my current PI, my PhD supervisor is very supportive of, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, however, in the past, I did encounter some problems. I don't really know if it was because I was a, uh, you know, because I'm a woman. Like, I don't know if it's actually yeah. centered around that. But mm -hmm. I know that there are PIs who can be, you know, who can have real yeah. discrimination issues yes. uh, in terms of that. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. Like, I always support that idea of uh, empowering women in STEM. Mm -hmm. And coming from India, I know how uh, suppressive Indian society is yeah. uh, in terms of empowering women in anything. Like, forget mm. science. Like, even just for them to go out of the house, there is, we still have... Uh, some cultures or some groups in India where women cannot go out of the house. They oh, wow. have okay. to, they just have to stay inside the house. They do long distance education or mm. if they have to go out of the house, a male companion should be there with them. Like they, mm. they can't uh, hang out with friends, you know, oh, wow. like these, like I, I came from a society where women are very underrepresented uh, yeah. in different areas and um, which was very frustrating for me. Mm. And, uh, you know, but also at the same time, like I, that was something that I wanted to change for myself. And uh, yes, definitely, I will, <laughs> I will definitely invest my time into empowering more women for sure. That's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's too close for me. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, um, it's, it sounds, uh, you know, obviously around the world, there is different cultures in different countries. But uh, it also seems like, um, again, I'm going to repeat myself, but you, you seem like uh, a perfect uh, role model as well for perhaps other girls like you that want to leave India because mm -hmm. of the same situation that they that you encounter or because they had another idea for themselves as, as females and it doesn't have to be in science. It can be in right. any type of job that you want to do. Um, but it seems like you, you also tick those boxes to to inspire i mean you are inspiring me at the moment because i i don't have this this kind of cultural perception in spain obviously there is um there is things here and there that still women are not considered as as well even clever or or you know mm -hmm. fit, fit for science um there is also like a male dominant culture but i don't think in spain we have this kind of repressive society against women you know that there is no cultural thing about not letting uh, girls or, or young women to live out without a male companion. What it's true, and it's really unfortunate, and I think it happens in other countries, I think you are raised to be 
like you your parents and society teach you to be scared when you leave your house alone yeah um you i, I grow up like this you know don't go alone um call your dad if something happens you know things like that i think it happens in every country um but uh, like obviously taking all of this together i think you will take all of this and and do something beautiful out of it and, and you will teach your students with this equality uh, and diversity and i think you are also making the perfect example from uh, for people from your country and, and especially little girls you know that they want to follow your steps and they perhaps think that um, obviously in such a uh, in like a repressive society they might already feel suffocated like they they cannot go out yeah. right yeah like even when i decided to move to canada for phd like one of my distant family members <laughs> i still remember i was in my final year of undergrad at that point i was only like i was still only 20 years old uh that time and i remember they were messaging me and they were like hey so i heard that you are planning to go out of the country for your phd um i think it's best that you get married first before oh, going wow. out because okay. then you have a companion with you like you have a person who who is going to take care of you when mm. you go to the other country right and i was i had so many emotions at that time. <laughs> well I was, yes <laughs> I, was only, i was only 20 years old i was still trying to finish my undergrad like i was not done with my undergrad and oh i was excited gosh. about the next steps and then there is this person who is saying that i need a male companion yeah. in my life to actually study you know wow it was uh it was like uh, i'm i mean my my parents did not encourage that idea they never you know uh, yeah. i'm thankful for that but just the fact that someone thought i can't do this on my own uh was really annoying for me hmm. i was like why why do you think that i can't go to a different country on my own so you know yeah. like um it's it's really bad um like even like now i'm 27 years old now and according mm. to the indian society i'm basically a unmarriable material or you oh know oh my god uh, so they <laughs> i'm have... 32 so <laughs> <laughs> so they have these different notions for women about what they sh- what women should do in their life at mm. what point and i i really think they have no business yeah. uh, you know finalizing what a woman should do or not do and mm. whether she should be alone or not like mm. these are things you know yes they are in 2021 and these things still happen yes so. <laughs> well i think when you know when when society and from different countries they are they are born and raised in this kind of uh, society perceptions about women it's really difficult to change that because that happens from mm-hmm. generation to generation like my um my grandma when she used to call me uh you know like typical sunday call with my grandma because we we lived uh, especially when i left to the uk we were in different countries so we were calling us every sunday uh it doesn't matter if she was asking me what did you had for lunch today mm-hmm. one of the questions of the conversation was when are you going to have children i already <laughs> had children when i was your age and i was like oh my god stop pressuring me like i'm doing a phd this is already hard enough don't don't make me think about having a child right now and taking care of another person <laughs> Yeah. So you know it's, it's it's cultural as well. It happens in right. Spain as well. Uh, women mm-hmm. are having children late and late and late because of we put priority to our careers, we have other ambitions. Um 
I want to be a mom, for example, but so far mm -hmm. I've been focusing on my career because that's what uh, needed all my effort and all my attention. And I will have right. children once I am prepared to have children, not when society expects me to have them. And this yeah. is this is really bad for obviously for females because we are the ones that we get pregnant. Um, if if a man has childs has kids. Um, later in their life it doesn't matter because well it's okay because you, you don't get pregnant right you don't have a biological thing <laughs> pressuring you to to be a young mom and things like that um so it's amazing as well that not only you you left your country to pursue your career but you also left your country challenging all those cultural perceptions uh, which it yeah. must be really hard to be honest if i put myself in your shoes it must be super hard to go against the, the majority of the beliefs you know and obviously people talk people have opinions about you and they think less of you because you decided that academic path instead of you know being a woman i mean i'm quoting this uh, what it is that being a woman i mean that's completely relative to to each person to the to each individual um so amazing what what you have done and, and to challenge all that stuff in just one plane one plane uh you know travel um so that's so 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 good I'm, I'm i admire you a lot because of all these things that you had to encounter by yourself and challenge by yourself um so i'm gonna put all of this in in one bag all these things mm -hmm. that we have been speaking so far yeah and I'm gonna ask you one last question for finishing this, this interview. Um, you know that one of the visions of this podcast is to challenge uh, and to inspire the next generation of scientists, uh, female scientists in particular. So if you had them in front of you right now, like, oh, what can I do because I have A, B, C, D, E problems, what would you tell them uh, to the next generation of female scientists to inspire them to get into STEM careers? You can say several things. It doesn't have to be only one. <laughs> okay. Like, so um, I think like whatever field you choose, like whatever, whatever part of your life, mm -hmm. challenge is something that's going to be there. Like whether yeah. it is your personal life, your professional life, it doesn't matter. Whether it's with your friend, with your family, with your boyfriend, with your husband, it really doesn't matter. You'll mm -hmm. always encounter challenges. So running away from them or changing yourself or changing your goal because you face the challenge mm -hmm. is not the right thing to do. Um, I think you should always like take time to understand the challenge yeah. and figure out how you can overcome the challenge. It can, it might not be possible on your own. You might mm -hmm. need some support, but I think you should be ready and willing to accept that support or ask for that support. Yeah. And you will be surprised how many people will be ready to offer that support. You might encounter, once you start asking, mm -hmm. you might encounter some negative responses, mm -hmm. but that should not keep you from not asking for help when it is needed. You know, yes. like always having that idea in the mind that it doesn't matter what the challenge is, you can figure out a way around it that's that is very important and having a vision in mind really helps you to do that like that's the only thing that can push you forward like without having those dreams and you know you you'll never have the thought of how to achieve those dreams yeah. so having the dream is very important whatever it is it can be you know um not everyone has the same dream but whatever no, it is yeah always having the dream is important and that dream can change. That's okay. But working towards it is 
you know, whatever the challenges are, that's I think is very important. And like I mentioned before, uh, you might encounter a lot of negative experiences in life, but it's very, very important to learn from those experiences rather than let those experiences bring you down mm -hmm. and change who you are. Uh, so it's important to learn from them and shape your life so that you are not doing those mistakes or, you know, you're not putting other people in the same path that you have mm -hmm. been through. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's important. Hmm. Wow. That's an amazing uh, uh, advice. And I wish we could frame it right now because uh, it can be applied for, for so many people, but I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, um, I have a younger audience in, in this podcast, so I really hope that they take this, this advice and they, and they make it theirs. And it's so important, like you said, to follow your dream, whatever that is. And it's okay if it changes, you just adapt to it and keep going, uh, you know, keep swimming like in the Nemo uh, picture <laughs> movie. <Yeah. laughs> um, so thank you so much for this amazing advice. Um, but also thank you for this amazing interview. Like my eyes are like so open with admiration for everything that you have overcome and that you are still overcoming and then, you know, thank keep you moving forward. Um, I'm so happy to have you as part of this, of this podcast. And I'm, I'm so, so, so honored that you are here and I've learned a lot from you. Um, so thank you a lot, Pratusha, for being here. I'm, I'm so, so, so happy to have met you and, and to learn so much from you. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here too.